And welcome back to Sports Talk. Doug Miles along with uh, Don Henderson tonight as we come to you on a uh, Monday evening, kind of a thunderstorm Monday evening. I'm down here in Sarasota, but Don up in New Jersey, where I understand it was, uh, it's been nice weather up there. You had a good Father's Day up there, Don, and uh, also want to wish you a happy birthday. So a nice weekend for you, huh? Well, thank you very much. And uh, the professor will tell you the same thing. Uh, yesterday and today are spectacular. Saturday, if you watch the golf tournament at all, you know, it was one of the worst days. <laughs> they said it was worse than playing in Ireland or England <laughs> or anywhere else. So we're lucky we got great weather now, and the professor is ready to tell us all about Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, about a, a great baseball book, and uh, again from our friends at the, the University of Nebraska Press, and this one is called Lefty and Tim, how Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver became baseball's best battery, and for people not aware, and Bill, maybe you're not aware, Tim McCarver has been with us uh, several times on our shows over the years, uh, Bill, because uh, he lives part of the year, as you know, down here in Sarasota, so when we saw that book was available, we wanted to have you on and uh, talk about one of our friends, and of course, Don worked for the Phillies for many years he knew them both quite well so uh first of all welcome to the show and thanks for being with us thanks for having me i mean it's really nice to reconnect uh i do remember don's time here i i connect him with wyp rate uh, sports talk radio um uh, but i do remember that he you know did temple basketball and was involved with the phillies for a while too yeah we were at uh, cau at that particular time uh of course, Lee Thomas was the general manager. We did the uh, general manager shows, the pre- and post-game shows for the Phillies, and then a talk show, of course, from uh, 10 o'clock or 9.30 until midnight or at the end of the game until midnight. So I uh, worked with the Phillies for uh, the better part of uh, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bill, uh, I know you've written a couple other books as well. You talked about uh, previously for Nebraska Press uh, on baseball, so obviously you're a big baseball fan. Just just give a little brief background uh, of, of, uh, of where you're from. I know you're up from the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, but as far as, go, as baseball goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, my first year following baseball was 1964. You know the story. Cool. The Bills were up by six and a half games with 12 left to play. They uh, dropped 10 in a row to gift wrap the NL pennant for the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> and it kind of went downhill from there until 19, the late 1970s and 1980 when the organization took its first world championship. So that's pretty much my story in a nutshell. Um, as far as playing is concerned, uh, you know, the, the game tells you when it has no use for you as a player anymore, so you find other things to do, and it told me in college. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, uh, I started writing about it because it, it is a passion of mine. How did you get the association, not so much with Timmy, because uh, he's pretty forthcoming and has, does radio and television still until a year or so ago. He did the TV show, which was syndicated all around the country, but how much uh, contact and uh, information did you get from Steve Carlton personally? Off the record, a lot. On the record, I couldn't write anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's Carlton. I mean, that's Carl. You know, the first time I wrote a book, wow, back in 2008 called Almost a Dynasty. University of Pennsylvania Press uh, published that book. And uh, just a few years before, the Phillies were celebrating – whatever, the 20th anniversary of their lone at that time world championship. And they had a big get-together in Atlantic City, and all of them were there. 
And I just got myself a room, and they were coming in and out, and I got all the interviews I wanted. And then it was Carlton's turn to be interviewed, and he walks in, and he says, uh, it's been 20 years. He says it's time to restart the no-talking policy. He turned around <laughs> and walked out. And, you know, I figured, well, Larry Christensen wrote the foreword uh, to this book. Larry's a neighbor of mine. And the book is, is is actually dedicated to him. And he was the guy that convinced me that if I was going to do a, a, a biography of Carlton, it would be incomplete without a, a dual biography, really, of Tim McCarver. And I'm glad he suggested that because LC tried six ways to Tuesday to get uh, Lefty to talk to me, and he just wouldn't. Uh, but Tim, Tim was great. I mean, Tim gave me hours of his time and i had known him and i'd done a couple interviews with him years earlier so uh as as most writers do you you uh get more information than you're going to use and and come back to it so i had more than enough material on tim mccarver really associated and you talk about it in the book uh, not only with carlton his personal catcher for several years with the phillies but of course going back you mentioned 64 with the, the cardinals uh, winning the world series against the yankees then and then again in 67 but uh mccarver and bob gibson uh, were uh, really a great battery for for several years so he really i mean obviously one of the all-time great defensive catchers and not a bad hitter as well people tend to forget uh, two world series he had great hitting world series so uh, interesting man isn't he Yes, he is. And I'm glad you brought that up because I always felt that Tim was shortchanged uh, in terms of his playing career. Uh, in 1964, uh, the World Series, of course, Gibby was the MVP, but it could have just as easily gone to Tim for that World Series. Um, I think, unfortunately, Tim came around uh, or, or came just before the the uh proto what became the prototypical catchers mm -hmm. who were uh power hitting catchers johnny bench carlton fist people like that and tim was not a power hitter i mean he hit for average uh but he was every bit as good defensively as those other catchers in fact in in terms of pitch calling i think he was better he also still holds the record for the most triples uh by a catcher and right. uh with was one of the, uh, you know, sidebars, if you have a chance to talk to Tim, that he is re really proud of. He talks about it, uh, you know, a lot about the fact that uh, he's in a very select group there, just one. <laughs> yep, that's true. That is true. I, I, I was a bit too quick by saying that he really wasn't a power hitter. He did hit for average. Um, but he could run. That was the big thing. Exactly. That's what I was just about to say. He could run. And for a catcher, that was exceptional. <laughs> So now you get all the information from Timmy, and you get very little information from Steve Carlton, and yet uh, Tim will tell you himself uh, that his two best friends in all of baseball, in fact, in life, really, were Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton. They are still very, very, the two, three of them were very, very close. Of course, Bob Gibson passed away. But uh, very, very difficult to get information from Steve Carlton. I wonder, you know, exactly which way direction you went there. Well, what I had to do was uh, uh, talk to teammates, uh, both from the Cardinals and uh, primarily from the Phillies, uh, about Lefty, uh, and then uh, count on the few contemporary uh, newspaper quotes that existed from pretty much 
about 1975 on. He did talk to the press. People don't understand that his no talking policy was evolved. It was gradual. And it, it came about because of a journalist by the name of Bill Conlon of the Philadelphia Daily News, <laughs> who in 1973, and Don, I know you remember him, uh, 1973, uh, lefty, according to Conlon, came to spring training camp out of shape. Well, truth was he had bronchitis, and it took him longer to get in shape. But he had a reversal of fortune as a result of those things in 1973. And where he went 27-10 and 72 and had that first Cy Young season, he went 13-20 and 20 in 1973. And all the way, Conlon was just criticizing him all the time. Selective quotation. Uh, excoriating him in the press if he had a bad outing. So 74 comes around, and Carlton says, I'll talk to anybody in the press except Bill Conlon. And uh, he accepted. I mean, you know, Conlon kind of accepted him. He knew it was coming. And then Stan Hoffman started in on him. And then it was, well, I'll talk to anybody except those guys on on the Daily News. And then he reached a, a truce. With Stan Hockman, as it turns out, Stan Hockman gave Carlton uh, the very last interview, and I guess it was September of 1979, before he completely stopped talking to the press. So uh, that policy evolved. Billy? I'm going to let you take that down. We, you and I were talking about Stan Hockman the other day, so uh, you take it from there. You knew Stan better than I didn't know him at all. So <laughs> Yeah, I worked, I worked with Stan on the Philadelphia 76ers on PRISM, uh, he was my color analyst for a couple of years, uh, along with uh, number three T uh, and, and Freddie Carter. But we did the games together, and of course, he worked on Channel Six, the ABC station, on the weekends. Stan Hockman, and uh, uh, he was a columnist for the Daily News. Uh, Bill Collin, uh, unfortunately, uh, troubles outside of the area of baseball and writing, but uh, was really one of the foremost and most respected baseball writers for years and years and years, not only for the Daily News, but working himself up from Penn State University. And, uh, but it just got to be a, a, a controversy between, uh, you know, the, the two gentlemen could not come together, and, and Bill was writing what he thought was, you know, and the Phillies got very upset about it too. You know, they, he wasn't happy, they weren't happy about what he wrote a lot of the times. But that's, that's his job. I mean, his job was to write – what he thought was the, was the best information to give them the readers. And, uh, of course, a lot of people disagree with that. And obviously, certainly Steve Crawford did because he was having a tough year. Absolutely. I guess I'm in a minority of one because uh, Stan Hockman is beloved in Philadelphia. And Colin, although not really liked, highly respected. Frankly, I don't respect Bill Colin, never did at all. And I had problems with Stan Hockman. And all that flows from a book that I wrote in 2004, which was titled September Swoon, Richie Allen, the 64 Phillies and Racial Integration. Mm. And for years writing that book, I tried to get in every means I could email, phone calls, even going to the Daily News building and, and trying to meet with both those guys. And they would never return calls. So, you know, what did I have left? I had their columns. And both those guys, they used the, the, the 
uh, issue of race to blow that team apart. It wasn't Allen. It was them. And, you know, and, and they did this from 1965 on after Thomas and a white veteran by the name of Frank uh, Thomas got into a fist fight at home plate. And then the Phillies uh, released Frank Thomas. Thomas went on the air, WIP radio, bad-mouthed Allen, and the fans just never forgave him. But those two, Conlon, Hockman, and another writer by the name of Larry Merchant, all three from the Philadelphia Daily News, they were the ones that kept on harping on, on this issue of racism and accusing Allen of, of uh, manipulating that to his own advantage, when in fact it was not. It was those three. And why did they do it? Because, like other chipmunk writers, starting with Dick Young of the New York Daily News, they became very intrusive in the personal lives of the players, um, and, and had to because, you know, with the advent of television, uh, you didn't need to write about what was going on in the game anymore. People could see it. So they, you know, that was their way of entertainment. And, 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 and to them, they were saying that, oh, they, you know, they, the fans have to have a liaison between, you know, themselves and the players, and, and we're the guys that keep them honest. That's garbage. And, uh, and, and Hockman, when the book came out, he started following me around all over Philadelphia on a speaking tour and uh, and trying to embarrass me. Hmm. And I said, Stan, you know, I I tried to reach you. I would have loved to interview you for this book, but you didn't return any of my calls. And then he finally stopped. Conlon uh, wouldn't talk to me in the, until 2008. And then he invited me to his house in uh, New Jersey Gave me a very nice lunch, uh, plied me with all kinds of information about the Phillies that I simply couldn't write. It was all off-field stuff and, you know, and their behavior, which I simply <laughs> couldn't write. I mean, I don't know why I did that. You know, maybe thought I was naive enough where I was going to write it. Uh, and then the book comes out. I send him a copy to thank him. And he said, this book is crap. And he says, you know what? You're a terrible writer. And I'm going to make it my aim to destroy you. Mm. So. Bill Conlon, I have no respect for it. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's kind of poetic justice what happened to him. But uh, Hockman, I just never understood. I could understand later on, um, you know, why people embraced him. And, in fact, I think he did his mea culpa by uh, really trying to support uh, uh, a group of little leaguers called the Anderson Monarchs. Um, you know, raise money for that organization. And uh, I think this may have culpa that way. But you look at his articles, I mean, they are caustically uh, uh, um, accusatory about Allen is manipulating racism. And it's, it just wasn't fair. Hmm. It just wasn't fair. Yeah, he was uh, <clears throat> a big part of the baseball writers on every uh, uh, Sunday morning on the on the show. And uh, he was a big part of that because he was considered and, and was until, unfortunately, the end of the line for him. Uh, he was still considered one of the best baseball writers uh, in the country at that particular time. And he was a big part of that show. But uh, you're right. I mean, he was very, very, uh, very, very difficult to uh, to understand at times. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, one of the best writers that uh, <clears throat> the Philadelphia Daily News ever, ever put together. 
And Hockman, uh, on the other hand, was, you know, he was a columnist, so it was a different story with Hockman. Right, right. Well, columnists, by definition, have to kind of stir the pot uh, because they are, you know, that's pure opinion. Uh, although I will say the, the writer that I have, uh, who I feel, is at least for me and I think for most Philadelphians now, uh, and, he, and he hasn't written quite some time. He, he worked for NFL Films, and then he was on uh, the Eagles postgame. He just retired as Ray Diddinger, and I thought his stuff was every bit as good as either of those guys. And, of course, Ray is in the uh, Pro Ho- uh, Football Hall of Fame. Absolutely. He just got the Burt Bell Award as well. So, uh, right. you know, he's, he's, a, he's in a class by himself. Yep. The other thing is that, uh, well, just from a sidebar standpoint, uh, at the end of the, the World Series, uh, <clears throat> at the end of the year, I walked over. Timmy was doing a game on national TV, and I was in the booth right next to him. And I walked over when the game was over, and I said, Timmy, how about coming, over, coming on with us for a little bit for the post-game show? And he said, oh, yeah, fine, no problem. So he came over, and uh, as we're doing the show, Steve Carlton was up in the doorway. And uh, he waved up to Steve Carlton to come down. And I think the last interview uh, of that type, uh, I did that night after the World Series because he and Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver sat together and uh, we just talked about the World Series and about a slider and about their – and I, I don't think he's ever – I don't know, but I don't think he ever did another interview after that. And he was on with us for about 15 minutes, and you would never think he had never talked to anybody for, you know, 10 years. What 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 year was that? Uh, right after the World Series. Uh, 93? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, here, here's. I'm glad you brought that up. That's interesting because, as I mentioned in the book, um, uh, Tim in 1980 became got his start in broadcasting with the Phillies broadcast team. Right. And, uh, both Lefty and him felt, look, it wouldn't be fair because of their friendship if if Tim was always getting the exclusive interview with him. So. Uh, that that just didn't happen. Now, I do think after the World Series, he did get one interview. Um, now, of course, uh, in, in more recent times, and we're talking about, you know, the 2000s, uh, whenever they uh, went to St. Louis, for example, uh, and, and were up in the broadcast booth, I know, you know, that, that Tim and, and Lefty, uh, had I wouldn't call it an interview, but a nice running discussion because a couple of those are on YouTube, and you know that yielded a lot of information. And in fact, a lot of quotations that I I got uh, from right. came off those YouTube tapes. You know, so thank God for those. Um, but you know, uh, I, I really do believe that Tim McCarver was, for me, uh, the best baseball broadcaster that I. I ever heard. Now, obviously, you know, there's Vin Scully, uh, Red Barber, who I wasn't around to hear, but I heard Vin Scully, you know, the Bucks. But I learned so much baseball from Tim McCarver listening to him. And the other thing I liked about him, he was candid. And, and I will admit that he was a hero for me twice over. First as a kid, because I was a catcher. And then later on, as a broadcaster, and uh, I, for many years, did a, a baseball podcast here in Philadelphia, and it wasn't, uh, it was about the Phillies, and they weren't too happy with it, because I was every bit as candid <laughs> as Tim was, 
in, in my remarks. But, you know, I think you have to be. I mean, that, that's a, a matter of personal integrity. And, and people don't want a homer. They really don't. Um, you know, they, they want to hear uh, an educated perspective on the team, on the players, on the game. And, and McCarver gave that. Oh, I can't disagree with that, Doug. Go ahead. Talking with Bill Cachetis, and let me just reset the title of the book again, Lefty and Tim, How Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver Became Baseball's uh, Best Battery. And, uh, Bill, just kind of going back a little bit, what we were talking about before, the the, the columnists that, uh, you know, poking into the, the players' private lives. I grew up in New York. Don was, uh, of course, more Philadelphia, but I uh, grew up uh, uh, kind of like the tw- tail end of the Dick Young era, and he's the guy that uh, Tom Seaver basically left New York because of a couple of columns Dick Young wrote back in 77, I guess it was. So, uh, you know, we had our share of those in New York. I heard that. Well, Dick Young is, I guess, considered the father of the chipmunk writers, and, you know, I know that he wrote the foreword to uh, – Conlon's book, um, batting cleanup, Bill Conlon. So, um, yeah, I, I, I understand that. And, and New York is clearly, I think the toughest market market to play in. Although people, and, and you know, Don might disagree with me on this, but, you know, I, I think the silent majority of Philadelphia fans, uh, are silent. And, and they're knowledgeable baseball people. Uh, unfortunately, the small minority of boo birds are the ones that uh, get the national reputation for us. And it's, it's really a shame. And, and our press, frankly, deserve them. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's changed. I mean, the press is nowhere near as, as hypercritical as, as they were. Uh, it was pretty much in baseball. Um, and that does you almost wait a minute, Bill. You almost have no press left. That's what that's oh, what yeah. is. There's there's nobody to compete with. Bill Connell had to compete with the Inquirer and the Bulletin, and right. uh, you know, and so did J- uh, Ray Kelly and and uh, so forth. And, so, and Ray Dinninger when he worked for the Bulletin. Uh, you know, you're you're talking about competition between papers, and now you don't get any competition because what you see in the Daily News, you see in the Inquirer, same thing. It's the same syndicate. You're right, and. Uh, I'll tell you something else. Uh, just like the major leagues have bought out the minor leagues and have their own minor league organizations, the Phillies are trying to control their own media relations by having their own uh, former players do podcasts. There's one right. that just, just started. It's uh, it's uh, Jimmy Rollins and Ron Darling, um, you know, covering the game. Uh, but John Cruck has his podcast. There's uh, you know, some other players, former players that, that get on that podcast. And, and, and those are the news feeds now. Um, so it, it's not like it was. And you're right. I mean, it, it was more colorful, definitely more lively when there were multiple papers in, in, this, uh, in this city that competed against each other. Doug? Bill, just want to talk a little bit about Steve Carlton's pitching style, and, and you go into that book quite well. Uh, I remember him uh, coming up uh, when I started watching baseball, I guess, early 70s uh, with uh, the tail end of the Cardinals and then, of course, with, with the Phillies. And uh, just that, uh, that powerful uh, kind of overhand delivery style. And uh, uh, just talk a little bit about uh, you know, his style of pitching, which you really don't see any lefties that pitch even close to the way he does now. You're right. You know, the first part of that book is really a story about Carlton McCarver and Bob Gibson, because Gibson had such a tremendous impact on both of their careers. Now, you know, clearly 
there was an age difference between uh, uh, a and uh, uh, Gibson. So uh, Gibson kind of, I won't say mentored, but put Timmy in his place, you know, when he was coming <laughs> up on everything from uh, race relations to, you know, not bothering him in his office, which right. is how he would. <laughs> and McCarver would come out and uh, Gibson would say to him, what the hell are you doing? Uh, back, back there. The only thing you know about hitting is that you can't do it. Get your ass <laughs> on So uh, now, McCarver and, and Carlton, yeah, there was a slight age difference, but they were more contemporaries and more friends, I think, then, although Gibson and McCarver did become friends. In terms of Gibson's influence on Carlton, I found very interesting because uh, not only did Gibson teach Carlton the slider, uh, which he did uh, on a off-season trip to uh, Japan. I guess it was in 1967 or 68. Um, but many of Gibson's idiosyncrasies, throwing inside, dare I say, headhunting, um, no talking or talking very little to the press, uh, not being disturbed by any of your teammates, even if it's a catcher on the mound not giving up the ball when the manager comes to take it. All those things, all those things Carlton learned from Gibson. And, it and don't forget, Bill, that they also had the confrontation between the catching itself because, uh, you know, uh, Bob Boone was really the you know, the primary catcher for the Phillies. And, of course, McCarver caught for the Phillies, then he went to Boston, and he came back. And there was always a controversy as why would they put McCarver in and uh, – there was a little, a little confrontation between Boone and McCarver as to why they would be catching. Right. Well, no, absolutely. And one thing that uh, strikes me as very curious is that, um, you know, Carlton and McCarver reached an understanding uh, by 1969 when they were together with the Cardinals. And McCarver, who had always insisted on calling the pitches himself, and Carlton, who insisted on throwing what he wanted to, finally came together and they mapped out a plan. Now, Boone uh, did not have that insistence and treated, I think, and especially as a rookie, his rookie year, 1973, treated Carlton with that kind of respect. But uh, for whatever reason, Carlton blamed his down year on Boone, and it never got better. And that's why in 1975, after the Boston Red Sox released Tim, uh, Tim came down to Philadelphia, and he was looking for a broadcasting job. And Paul Owens, the general manager of the Phillies at that time, called him in and said, well, Tim, we don't have a broadcasting job, but we have a need for a backup catcher and a pinch hitter, and you can still play. So uh, McCarver signed on. He caught uh, Carlton in a handful of games. It worked. 1976, Johnny Oates, who uh, they had acquired from Atlanta, gets hurt on opening day. And McCarver, uh, Carlton doesn't want to throw to Boone anymore. McCarver finds himself as Carlton's personal catcher. Hmm. And the rest history from 76 to 79. And while I have this opening, let me just point out that um, Carlton made 709 starts 
over the course of his 24-year MLB career, and McCarver caught 228 of them. That's 32% of them. But between 76 and 79, Carlton made 140 starts, and McCarver caught 128. That's 91% of them. And at one point, McCarver caught Carlton in 90 straight starts, and Carlton went 48 and 26. Mm. Overall with the Phillies, and that is not only uh, 1976 to 1979, but also 75 and the first half is 72. When Carlton pitched and McCarver caught, Carlton was 81 and 45. Wow. And, and that battery, that, I mean, these are unbelievable numbers. I mean, one of the reasons Elsie was right about doing a dual biography is, and I didn't realize this until I crunched the numbers, I did not know how good they were. In terms of starts, uh, that battery of Carlton McCarver with those 128 games together, in terms of starts, uh, they are, um, let's see, I guess they are 16th all time, in term, all time. And in terms of, no, excuse me, they're 20th all time. And uh, in terms of wins, um, Carlton McCarver had 120 victories, which ranked 16th all time. Hmm. So these guys were unbelievable together. Unbelievable. And, you know, we're talking about batteries here that, um, you know, Mickey Lolich and Bill Freehand of the Tigers, Warren Spahn and Del Grandel of the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, you know, these are, you know, batteries that were very exceptional. And um, Carlton McCarver were, you know, right up there with them. Well, Bill, best of, best of luck with the book. I tell you, you've done a nice job on our show. And uh, I'll let Doug wind it up. And, but I just want to thank you very much for coming on, spending so much time with us. And best of luck with it. I'll look forward to getting a chance to read it myself. Thanks, Don. Just one more time, the title, Lefty and Tim, How Steve Carlton and Tim McCarver Became Baseball's Best Battery, and it's published by University of Nebraska Press. And, Bill, I guess that's the place uh, they can go, people can go, or is it available everywhere? Well, it's it's available in all Barnes & Noble stores. I know that. Right. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of signings at Barnes & Noble. haven't been down there yet, but, uh, yeah, it is, it, it's available online, on Amazon. It's available at University Press of Nebraska, and it should be at all the Barnes & Noble stores. Great. Bill, real pleasure talking to you. I know you probably have another one in the works, so please uh, keep in touch. I know uh, we have our emails, so let us know when that comes out. We'd love to have you back on. Thanks a lot, Doug. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks again. Okay. See ya.